Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Well, good to be here, and um, I um, this will be uh, we'll look on this. This will be my third uh, third and last little presentation on the, the uh, days of Holy Week. Um, I, I've, I've wanted to focus on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday because of all the days; these are the least understood or known by most people. Um, and yet, if you read the Synoptic tradition and you Put a few pieces together. It's a, it's a pretty clear picture of what the Lord did on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I'm sorry, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of Holy Week. Um, now, just as a quick reminder, on Monday, you may recall, he had gone up to Bethany that night before, came down now, cursed a fig tree on the way down. He wept over Jerusalem and went into the temple. Seeing uh, the injustices there, he turned over the tables and effect, effectively announced that temple worship is over. And he left and went back up to Bethany. The next day, Tuesday, yesterday, which we discussed, he was confronted by the temple leaders, uh, asking the authority by which he did this prophetic action. And uh, they won't answer him, so he won't answer them. And then through a series of parables, he both challenges them, provokes them, and, 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 you know, warns them of condemnation to come if they do not decide rightly concerning him, that their eternal destiny is at hand. He, he finished with six different woes and, uh, and then left that, that day and went back up to, the, um, uh, up to Bethany, okay? So, and then we talked a little bit about that. That very harsh rhetoric kind of has its place uh, when a person is particularly stubborn and hard-hearted. Um, it isn't our first recourse, but we are often, though, lacking in that type of vocabulary today. He said to them, how are you to avoid being sentenced to hell? And I, can, I, I think you could probably count on the number of, on one hand, most of you, the number of priests whom you've ever heard anything like that come out of their mouth in a sermon uh, today. And so I think that we need to rediscover that the, the, these types of warnings and, uh, you know, things aren't, 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 aren't our daily fare, aren't the first thing we go to, but they should not be something that the faithful are utterly unaccustomed to hearing, nor should your children and grandchildren be unaccustomed to hearing you occasionally warn. And you could do it in a loving way. Well, listen, dear, I, I know you think it's okay to be shacked up with your boyfriend or girlfriend, but I, I, I'm just, God doesn't say that. And God says that it, it, he warns about it. And I just don't want you to go to hell, dear. I just really don't want you to go to hell. And then they scorn at you and laugh at you and say, God won't worry. But, but you're, you'll get through to them. You know, they have not heard those types of things said to them. And they need to. They need to. Because the Lord does say that fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And that is unrepentant fornicators, right? The worst thing is in the world is in the people's sin. The worst thing in the world today is that there's so much of this clenching of fish. I will not be told what to do. No one will tell me what to do. And that's the that's the real serious situation. It isn't just, just that a person 
is fornicating or struggling with same-sex attraction or what have you, the worst thing is that they clench their fist and they say, I will not be told what to do. And that is a sin that can't be forgiven because they don't want it forgiven. And so these are the things that we have to become, I think, a little more sober about. And we can say it in a loving way, you know, dear, I just don't want you to go to hell. And um, there's too many scriptures that warn about what you're doing. I just need you to know I love you and I care about you. And I want you to repent and I want you to get back to church. Okay. Now, that was uh, yesterday, a very, uh, very strident teaching of Jesus here in the temple, kind of a closing argument, so to speak, in his great public ministry. Now then, today is a much simpler day in that Jesus stays up in Bethany. He does not go down uh, into Jerusalem. However, the day begins on an ominous note. We sometimes call this Spy Wednesday. Hmm? And we'll see about that in a moment. But Matthew's gospel, I'm in Matthew 26 and verse 1. Matthew says this. Uh, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, you know, um, he, he, you know that, early that morning, he says, as you know now, the Passover is two days away. Um, so last night, as he went back up to Bethany, after um, all those teachings, including the Mount Olivet Discourse, Tuesday evening last night, he said this. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, He said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is now two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And then suddenly the scene shifts across the Kidron Valley up on Mount Zion at the house of the high priest Caiaphas. And in the very next verse says, the chief priest and the elders of the people had assembled in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, where there may be a riot among the people. Now then, um, Jesus uh, arises on Wednesday morning and he decides not to go down into Jerusalem. He stays up in Bethany. And we'll see later on he's at a party at the house of Simon the leper. We don't know exactly what happened that morning. Maybe he just spent a relaxing morning with friends. You know, it's. Um, there's a beautiful line, you know, that speaks of um, a faithful friend is a sturdy shelter, and uh, one who finds one who finds one uh, has a has a has a real treasure. So I'm sure that the Lord very much uh, needed some consolation after all the strident stuff of the last couple of days, and knowing what was before him. Can you imagine, maybe on this Wednesday morning, that he would have just needed a little time to kind of convalesce and spend some time in the company of friends and those who understood those who were um, who loved him Um, because he's going to experience some real pain ahead of him and he just had a lot of pain behind him and just every now and again you need to be in the presence of people who understand and who love you I think that's uh, where we are now a lot of us for example I as a priest you know I very much miss gathering with my people on a Sunday morning and um, uh, I've been with them as their pastor for 12 years but really, I've been with them for 24 of my 31 years as a priest, because I was here in a, in a previous assignment as a parochial vicar. I went away for eight years and pastored in St. Thomas More, eight wonderful years there. And then I came back here. And, you know, when I gather with my, with my people, I, I, I say to them, you know, for you, I'm your pastor and with you, I'm your brother. But from you, I am your son because you all have raised me up in the faith. It's been your example. It's been your, your prayers. Your, you've helped form me to be the priest and the man that I am. 
you've been with me in difficult times. You've encouraged me when I was struggling. You, you, um, I've encouraged you. I've buried your, your relatives. I, I baptized your children. I've done your weddings, and you've invited me into those beautiful moments of your life. And I, I love you all very much, and I miss you. And so this is one of the great pains for me at this time, especially for Holy Thursday. That it's always this, the the closest parishioners, the ones who are most active. I've noticed that show up on Holy Thursday for that Holy Thursday Mass. And it's uh, it's a beautiful Mass. And uh, some of my, the usual 200 volunteers, you know, who are there for everything, you know. And uh, I won't have that this year. I won't have it. And uh, I'll miss, I very much miss it. So the idea of being in company with people you love, who understand, who are your, the ones who support you. And even when you you fall or you fail, or you you have a flash of anger, they understand and they forgive, you know. These are the kinds of um, things that we all need. And I think of our Lord this morning then on, on this Wednesday of Holy Week, just spending a little relaxing time with uh, friends, Martha, Mary, Lazarus, and some others there who, who love him and uh, have taken care of him and supported him and understand. And there he is with his disciples. Now then, though, we also see something, um, and we don't know exactly when he slips away to do it, but sometime, at some point during this day, and I'm reading now from Matthew 26 again, in the 14th verse. Then one of the 12, uh, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And so this very ominous event takes place, even as Jesus is trying to relax with friends. One of his so-called friends slips away and, if you will, takes money in order to betray him. Now, we'll look at Joseph, uh, the possible motivations of Judas in a moment, but I'm just trying to set the events of the day. All right. So we don't know, again, maybe in the early afternoon and so on, but it's, it, you know, he spends his time with family and friends there. and. Um, um, perhaps maybe, maybe Mary's mother is there as well. She's not mentioned, but she was often in the apostolic band. She traveled about with them. We know that she was there during the crucifixion. So Mary was probably there. Um, and also Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, and uh, all of these perhaps close friends of Jesus. And yet, at this very moment, one of them, one who ate my bread, said, said David, has, has, has raised his heel against me. Um, and... Um, it was you, my own friend, my companion, uh, how close we walked together in harmony, and yet you, you have betrayed me. So Judas slipped away, and this took place on this day. Now, one other event takes place on this day, and um, it is that in the evening, in the evening, it would appear that Jesus goes to the house of Simon uh, the leper. Now, he couldn't have been an active leper because uh, if he was, had active leprosy, he wouldn't be able to be in the community. But he's probably one of the lepers that Jesus healed. Simon was actually a Pharisee. Now, by the way, not every Pharisee hated Jesus. Um, the Pharisees were, were a very large group of people. It's like Republicans or Democrats, you know. I mean, you, you know, uh, so in other words, not every Pharisee hated Jesus. Um, some of them uh, did follow him and became disciples. Uh, Simon the leper may well have been one of the lepers that we read about that Jesus healed. Anyway, he's now at the house of Simon the leper. And I'm reading again from Matthew 26, that on this Wednesday, 
of Holy Week. Now, this, this, this passage may confuse you in a moment, and I'll, I'll address those, but let's just read it. He's there, at, uh, he's there dining at the house of Simon the leper. Now, let me remind you of how people sat at table. They didn't sit at tables in, like we do today on chairs and high tables on high, higher chairs, but rather they, they reclined on the floor. Uh, they leaned on their left elbow. Their feet were behind them, and they would eat with their right hand, usually with a piece of bread and their right hand, and they would, this is how they would eat. So his feet are back behind him. This, this helps to understand there's not some woman crawling under the table anointing his feet. Are you praying with me? Okay, just because you're clear about the situation. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume. It says here, she poured it on his head as he was reclining at table. Now, um, um, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Now, let's just stop there for a minute. Um, You'll notice again, this, um, this action is told in all, in, in all the synoptic gospels, but they all seem to locate it at a little bit of a different time, and they all seem to have a little bit of a difference in detail. In one case, uh, Jesus' feet are anointed and dried with her hair. At another occasion, here we see it's his head that's anointed. Uh, in, in, in John's gospel, he, he says that when this event happened, it was only Judas who objected and said this money could have been uh, spent for the poor. And by the way, he notes that Judas didn't say this because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he liked to draw from the money purse. Um, the, um, um, uh, so, but anyway, all that aside, so each of the gospel, all four gospels actually mention this event, but they seem to locate it in different places. Um, I think it's in Mark's gospel. It's much earlier in Jesus' ministry. Uh, here it is placed on Wednesday of Holy Week in Matthew's gospel. Likewise, John's gospel does seem to locate it sometime during Holy Week, uh, but maybe even just before Palm Sunday. So we're just not sure the exact historical event. Now, there's several possible answers to this conundrum. First of all, it could have happened more than once, that this was something that several women did, uh, maybe in imitation of one another, uh, maybe who, but by the way, we don't know who the woman was. Um, in one case, it's mentioned in one of the gospels that it's Mary, but was it Mary of Bethany or was it Mary Magdalene? Hmm? We don't know for sure. The church fathers disagreed. Um, we, um, but it may have been done more, on more than one occasion that uh, women, you know, kind of imitated or sort of tried to outdo each other in piety. <laughs> uh, pardon me for putting it that way, but, but in, in honoring Jesus. So it might have happened more than once. Or, and I think what we have to simply accept is that, as I've told you before, as you look at the framework, the historical framework of the Gospels, they're not, they're not pretending to write a strictly chronological account of Jesus' life, um, where there's absolutely no variance and so on, what they tend to do is they tend to group certain aspects of Jesus' teachings around certain events and, and, and places. Now, this shouldn't surprise you. If, let's say you went to Walt Disney World. Now, don't go to Walt Disney World. We all know what happened to Walt Disney World. But just as an example, you know that if you go down there to Walt Disney World in Florida, you've also got the MGM Studios, you've got the uh, Universal Studios, you've got different theme parks down there too. You might, if you're going to talk about your vacation down there, you might lump certain events together, and you might not just tell a strictly chronological. Well, first, I woke up on that morning, 
and I, I, I immediately turned off the alarm clock with my index finger and I hit snooze twice. And then I got up and, you know, I took a comb between my two fingers and I pulled it through my, and then I got, you know, and then I got on the plane and then you're going to skip a lot of stuff and you're going to kind of go right to the heart of it. Had a great time down there. We went here, we went there. You might've gone to the Disney world thing first, but you end up talking about the MGM studios first. And then you say, Oh yeah. And we also went to the, the, the Disney park. You might rearrange the order. All these things actually happen, but you might rearrange them. And you might also rearrange them if you're talking to a group of children or if you're talking to adults. Maybe you're talking to some people who have been there and other people who haven't. You might add details or subtract details just depending on the audience. So we need to have some sophistication that these events are laid out for us uh, in a way that are there, these are things that Jesus actually said and did. But sometimes the apostles will move an event to a different area so they can highlight something with it. And they're not pretending that it didn't happen at an exact day and time um, in, in, in different ways. So I think the best we can do with this event, which seems to have happened by, according to, it's all mentioned in all four gospels but they all sort of located at different times and they all sort of place it in different um, spots uh, with different details that it actually did happen. It may have happened more than once and that uh, the gospels are not proposing to being a chronological history like we might write today um, in our particular methodology. So I hope that helps and we can in the question and answer session, maybe deal with some of that. But for our sake, Matthew does locate it on the Wednesday of Holy Week this day. And that's why we're looking at it today, all right? Now, it would seem here that again, uh, the, the apostles in general object. Aware of this objection, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done me a beautiful thing. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she has done it to prepare me for my burial. And truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. All right. So Jesus links this action of this woman as a preparation for his burial, which will be in uh, three days time. Okay. So um, this is a, uh, uh, what happens here at the house of Simon, the um, um, Simon, the uh, leper. Now was, was Judas here and then later slipped away uh, and went and, and conspired because this, this annoyed him so much. Um, maybe, or did he go early in the day? We don't know. Um, but we know that at some point Judas slips away and he goes and he offers to betray Christ and they pay him 30 pieces of silver. And Judas now looks for a time to hand Jesus over. Now, um, we don't actually have a lot more, uh, to say about this day in terms of events, but I would ask you to ponder a couple of thoughts about it. And then we want to look at Judas's motivation, and then I want to get your questions. First of all, you'll notice that the very next day, tomorrow, Jesus gives some very, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, some very mysterious instructions to a couple of the disciples. He says to a couple of his disciples, go down into the city, and you'll find a man carrying a water jar, which was a rare sight because women normally carried water jars, not men. Uh, don't ask me why, but uh, that's just the way it was. And um, um, 
you'll find a man carrying a water jar, follow him and he will show you a room, spacious, uh, all furnished and set in order. There you are to prepare the Passover for us. Now, that's very mysterious, very, very uh, sub rosa. Why? Um, again, probably because he knows that Judas is out to try to hand him over. And this is not the time for him to be handed over. He has to celebrate the Passover. So he doesn't make it widely known, even to the rest of his disciples, where the Passover will be celebrated. He just simply tells two of them, you go down there, you'll find a man, he'll show you the place, you go and prepare, and I'll meet you there later with the rest of the disciples. So there's a kind of a secretive quality about where this, this Passover uh, will be celebrated. And part of that is because uh, Jesus knows there are people conspiring to, to arrest him. He doesn't want it widely known where he's going to celebrate the Passover. And he could also then again be referring to the fact that he already knows that Judas is looking to betray him. He's looking for a moment when uh, he can say, well, look, I know where he's going to celebrate the Passover. So come interrupt them in the Passover and arrest them then. Um, and um, and this, is, um, this is all to be avoided because Jesus must celebrate the Passover before he suffers. Okay. Uh, in fact, he begins the Passover tomorrow with desire. I have desired to celebrate this Passover with you before I suffer. So you'll notice again that this, uh, this conspiracy, the setting up around Jesus is known by him and is already hinted at in that very kind of cagey, you know, you say, well, I'll tell you what, we're going to celebrate the Passover at 125 um, Zion Boulevard, uh, right at the corner of, uh, Euph- you know, right at the corner of um, Zazimus uh, Street. Uh, that's where we're going to celebrate it. You know, you'd think that would be normally the way, you know, he would he would announce where the Passover. But he says very surreptitiously to just two of them. Go, you'll find a man. He'll show you the place. Go there. Get ready for it. And I'll meet you there. Okay. So you understand now? You follow that? Okay. So we call this Wednesday Spy Wednesday. And that's part of the reason that we... Um, that we're uh, you know, looking at it this way. Let's return now to Judas for a moment. Why did he do it? Why did he do it? We may have talked about this in a previous session. I can't remember, but let's review. I think Judas's problems are several. Now, I'm doing some speculation because we don't really have a full psychological analysis of Judas presented in the Gospels. He's some um, He's a figure, he's historically present, that we know a little bit about him, about his thoughts. He doesn't say that much in the Gospels. So what I'm about to do is a little bit speculative, but I think it's based on Scripture. Uh, We know that Judas began to fall into trouble when it came to the teaching on the Eucharist. Go back to, in your mind, to John chapter 6, and you'll remember that the Lord gave the bread of life discourse. And he says, the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no life in you. At this point, many of the Jewish people who took him literally, uh, as he meant it literally, um, would now leave him. And they said, this is crazy talk. And they left him and would no longer follow in his company after this day. So Jesus lost a lot of followers on that day. Now, he turned then to the twelve. And he said, will you also leave me? And Peter, speaking for the 12, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. And he said, did I not choose you 12? And yet is not one of you a devil? And he said this in reference to Judas Iscariot, who would later betray him. 
So it's interesting that the first sign of trouble that we see with Judas is at the announcement of the Eucharist. Now, this leads then to some other possible motivations of Judas. As you recall, the, the, as you recall, the, the, um, the Jewish people had a notion of the Messiah that was largely mistaken from Jesus' viewpoint that the Messiah would be a warrior. He'd be a, an, a, maybe a, an, an inspirational or ideological leader who would rally the Jewish people to war against the Romans and after a bloody war would, would send them packing and reestablish the kingdom of David in all of its glory. And so um, many people stepped up at Jesus' times and declared themselves to be uh, this Messiah. And some of them led up insurrections, and they were ruthlessly put down by the Romans. And Josephus says that from the time of about uh, from the time of about thirty till about seventy A.D., there must have been ten thousand messiahs who presented themselves. Um, now Jesus was the only true Messiah among them. But you see, the problem is that there was this idea that when Messiah came, he would be popular. He would be a great ideologue. He would be inspire the people of Israel to rise up against their, their opponents and so on. So as Judas sees a number of people departing from Jesus uh, at this teaching on the Eucharist, um, he regards this teaching as something dispensable. And uh, he's angry. Uh, he begins to become disillusioned. Was it the teaching on the Eucharist itself or simply the fact that the Lord began to lose a lot of followers because of this? You see, what kind of a Messiah is this? I didn't sign up for this. I've been with this guy for three years, wasting my life, and this guy's blowing it. And I'm tired of this. And, you know, and, and he starts to begin to, to get, you know, angry. Now, we see that in the final journey then to Jerusalem, um, we see that uh, uh, Judas seems to become more disillusioned. Now, it is possible, we're not sure about this, but some have speculated that Judas was also a member of the Zealot Party. Uh, we know that one of Jesus' other disciples, uh, James, was a member of the Zealot Party. Um, the, um, uh, but that's all we hear about that. The Zealot Party was a group of uh, zealous Jews who really were very pro uh, pro-war. Uh, they, they, were, uh, they wanted to go to war with the Romans, and there was their political position to foment, uh, to, you know, to foment anger against the Romans and, and to begin to build uh, for uh, the consensus to go to war. Uh, so that was a zealot party. So this may have added to Judas's disillusionment as Jesus kept talking about, we're going to Jerusalem where I'm going to suffer and die at the hands of men and be raised on the third day, whatever that means. And this does not fit Judas's concept of Messiah, and um, it doesn't fit even the other apostles' concept. They're all kind of confused by this, um, this kind of talk. Uh, they expect, you know, to have corner offices in the new administration uh, and, you know, in the palace. And, you know, Peter wants to be the prime minister. And, you know, the rest of them are going to, you know, have lots of power because they're, they're, the they're, they're the guys that are close to the Messiah. And all of this is crashing and burning before their very eyes. And so they're all struggling and a little disillusioned, but it would seem Judas is particularly disillusioned because he slips away now and he goes to betray the Lord. Now, a third motivation, and this is definitely mentioned in scripture in John's gospel, Judas was greedy. And um, the idea of handing him over for 30 pieces of silver is he said, what will you pay me if I hand him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Now, 
I don't think it was just to get the money, but he realized that this mission wasn't going places. And his vision or dream of money and power and power and the money that goes with it was beginning to go up in smoke. And so he's disillusioned and angry and bitter. And he then sees this wasteful use of the perfume and all that kind of stuff. Uh, this money could have been, this perfume could have been sold and the money put in the bag so that Judas could steal from it, you know? So there's a lot of this going on. I can't give you a complete psychological portrait of Judas, but this is why he does it. Um, these are some of the reasons why. Um, now, but, but, but Father, but Father, he, he regretted what he did. He repented. Um, yes, he did repent. Um, he regretted what he had done at some point. Is he in heaven or hell? And a lot of people want to kind of say, well, look, Father, he was repentant. And, um, but he, he didn't repent to the Lord. He repented unto himself and he despaired and committed suicide. And, you know, Jesus says of him, woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would be better for him had he never been born. Now, I can't imagine Jesus saying that of anyone who eventually makes it to heaven through repentance. So I'm going to just say, I can't tell you he's in hell and the church doesn't formally teach it, but I can tell you it doesn't look too good for Jews. No. Now let's talk about though, how he repented and how it's distinct and different from proper repentance. St. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says he, he distinguishes two kinds of sorrow, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And he says in 2 Corinthians 7, godly sorrow brings about repentance and brings you back to God. Whereas worldly sorrow brings death, makes you run from God. Now, um, the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow is very beautifully illustrated in Simon Peter versus Judas. You'll notice that Peter did a terrible thing. He denied he knew Jesus. And he had to live with that guilt for three weeks before he and Jesus finally sat down at the lakeside and had a talk about it. And he, he, he received mercy. Peter lived with that sorrow. For three weeks. Whereas Judas would not abide the sorrow. He says, I've done a bad thing. I can't live with myself. How could I have done such a thing? I'm angry now with what I've done. I'm bitter. He wasn't what I expected, but I probably did more than I should have. I shouldn't have handed him over like that. But instead of going to God and saying, I've repented, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't know what else, you know, he just went and hanged himself. He wouldn't, he would not live with that sorrow. That's worldly sorrow, and it produces death. It's rooted in pride. And um, I will not suffer this. I will not suffer this, this anger that I have at myself and this anger I have that Jesus wasn't what I expected. I will not live with my disillusionment. I will not live with my anger. I will not live with the guilt of what I've done. I will simply end it. And he hanged himself. And that is what we call worldly sorrow. Whereas Peter had godly sorrow. Do you see the distinction, right? So what became of Judas? I can't absolutely tell you he's in hell. But it doesn't look too good. But isn't it? Think about it for a minute. Wouldn't it have been beautiful had he repented? Think of all the churches that would be named, like Judas, the, the Church of Saint Judas, Hope of Sinners, or <laughs> the Church of Saint Judas, Refuge of Sinners, or something like that. <laughs> you know, Hope for the Hopeless. You know, <laughs> uh, Patron of Patron of of of, uh, of, of you know of. Um, this, the betrayers, or you know, all these things that he, we would have had litanies, you know, all the things that could have happened had Judas repented to the Lord. But sadly, all we can do is shake our head. So that's kind of, a, again, what takes place. Now, of course, he didn't hang himself on this Wednesday, but this is the day that he hands him over. And uh, but I did want to speculate with you 
So today is a fairly simple day in one sense, in that Jesus stays up in Bethany in the company of friends and probably needs that time. Uh, events are going to unfold starting tomorrow that will lead to him being in a dungeon by tomorrow night and on trial by 6 a.m. Friday morning, uh, being led to the cross by 9 a.m. and uh, on the cross from 12 to 3 and, and dead by 3. Events are going to unfold very rapidly for Jesus now, and he's spending time in the company of those he knows and loves who can console him and encourage him, and um, he'll spend, uh, spend that time. Uh, there is then, of course, this dinner party. There is this anointing and other things. But above all, the other thing that takes place across the Kidron Valley is an act of great betrayal. And um, that takes place as well. All right. So uh, comments or questions now about um, this particular. Maybe you can help me, Kelsey. Yeah, Gilbert. Why don't we start with you? Okay, uh, quick question. Uh, we talk uh, dealing with the uh, Jewish view of the Messiah as a military person. I mean, uh, we use the phrase uh, Dominus Deus Sabaoth. Uh, doesn't that, can't that be translated Lord of Armies? Yes, and that's, that's a very good translation of it. Um, of course, our, our, the battle our Lord comes to fight is a spiritual battle. Hmm? Um, now, by the way, uh, it, it isn't simply that they thought that the Messiah would be a military leader, but certainly a charismatic leader who would inspire a great uh, overthrow of the Romans somehow. Uh, so I would say, Gilbert, that, yeah, that's a very good translation, but it, it, it would, it would, we would want to first and foremost focus on the spiritual battle. You should name him Jesus, for he will save his people from Roman oppression. Oh, no, no, that's not what the text says. Uh, you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from economic ruin. Uh, no, that's <laughs> not what the text says. You shall name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so he engages, um, he engages in the great battle for our souls. Um, Bob is writing in, and he's wondering, why was it necessary for Judas to betray Jesus? Didn't most people back then know what Jesus looked like? And why was a kiss necessary to identify him? Well, I, I think uh, it's, in, it's interesting. Uh, it's probably a lot easier to identify people today when we live in such a visual culture. huh? Um, you know, you, you didn't exactly have posters everywhere with Jesus' picture uh, in those days. You know, you didn't have certainly photographs or, uh, you know, f video footage rolling all the time. So it, it might not be as easy as you think. And secondly, uh, Jesus could be like anyone else. He could uh, uh, discreetly. Like, for example, I, I'm pretty well known as a priest. People recognize my face. So I'll sometimes go shop in areas when I need to go in areas where I'm not that well known. And uh, Jesus would know how to kind of stay out of the crowd's eyes and as well, too. And so I think that uh, it was necessary because, as I say, you notice I gave you that. That's why I gave you that example. Jesus uses rather cryptic language to set up the location for the Last Supper because he doesn't want Judas to know. Um, but it does take somebody on the inside to know exactly where Jesus is going to be at a certain point. And also this, the, they, they want to arrest him at a private moment, not when he's with the big crowd, because they feared the crowds. They feared a riot if they arrested Jesus. So they want to find him at a private moment where he's not with a big crowd. And that's going to take an insider like Judas to pull that off. So those would be a couple of ways I would answer that question. Greg, did I see that you had your hand up as well? Yeah, I, just a quick question. How how closely does the timeline that we just went through 
correlate to the diatessaron, the, the blended uh, gospels that were, I guess, blended well, in the second century? Yeah, well, that's largely what I what I, I followed. There's something, there's a modern version called gospel parallels that sort of line up all these texts uh, in columns, uh, and it's very similar to the diatessaron. Um, it's interesting, uh, the version I have even tries to include some of John, which has a very different chronology, but uh, does it, it plugs in some of his material as well. So, yes, uh, I, I, I am trying to follow this, um, and I'm also using some modern uh, sources called Gospel Parallels. Great, thank you. Rosanna is writing in and is wondering, do we happen to know how much the 30 pieces of silver was worth, like, in today's standards? Isn't that interesting? Um, I could even try to get on the internet and, and say that to find that out. But let's just say it was not a small amount. Um, you know, um, um, geez, I'm just going to type it in. How how much would would 30 pieces of silver be today? <laughs> yeah, here it is. It right pops up. So let's see if it would. Okay. And by the way, experts are going to vary on this, right? Um, so how much would it be? Let's see, 30 pieces of silver. Um, well, that's funny. It's not as much as I would have thought. Um, today, um, it would be worth about uh, $215. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> I think it was a lot more. Um, so there you have it, but uh, uh, okay. Uh, but, but let's just say it wasn't a it wasn't a small amount, um, um, but it was um, it, it, as, as Father Hezekiah gave you, I think, earlier in the week, maybe even on Monday. Uh, it's, it's from Zechariah, isn't it? They, they 30 pieces of silver. Uh, they paid me, you know, for uh, for my the price for my for my 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 uh, my death, you know. So it's, it's, a, it's a quote from the prophets as well. Uh, Teresa, you can go ahead and unmute yourself. Just kind of as a follow-up to that, uh, isn't 30 pieces of silver about what they paid for Joseph when they went to slavery? Yes, yes exactly. So this is a very common amount, isn't it, for for treachery, <laughs> 30 pieces of silver. You know, I, I think what confused me was uh, a pieces of silver is one thing. I was thinking of the talents, the, the 30 talents would be like, we're talking like trillion bucks today, you know? All right. But he wasn't paid talents. He was paid pieces of silver. So, yeah. But you're right. Uh, thanks for pointing that out, Charissa. This is a fairly consistent number with treachery in the Bible. Um, I was wondering, Monsignor, if you thought that maybe anointing Jesus' head with oil uh, recalls Moses uh, anointing Aaron. Uh, uh, could be. I mean, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to say that, it, that it, it has nothing to do with that. I, On the other hand, you have... Um, some problems with that in that uh, you you have Moses, a superior, anointing Aaron, an inferior, a priest anointing another priest, whereas here you have a woman anointing uh, Jesus, an inferior, uh, not just because she's a woman, but because he's the Lord, anointing mm -hmm. the Lord. So I think it, it, at best it's a visual remembrance, but I wouldn't uh, put a lot of significance uh, sacramentally or theologically on it. Jesus interprets it as this is anointing me for my burial, not for my priesthood or for my office of prophet or um, or king. Monsignor, I'm wondering if you can um, maybe shed some of your insight on particular thing that Jesus said. Both Jeff and Alexandra have written in asking about this. Um, and Jeff elaborates, how can Jesus 
say that Judas, who was a member of his own creation and loved him as much as Jesus did, how can he say that it would have been better for him to have not been born? Is that kind of just like a figure of speech type thing or, or yeah. Yes. I think first of all, he doesn't say it's better that he had never been born. It'd be better for him had he never been born. Now that there's a distinction that's important there in that um, God doesn't hate even Satan. You know, all of God's creatures he's ever made, God still loves. They have the chosen devils and demons and Satan have chosen to depart from him and live in opposition to him. But God cannot hate. God is love. Um, God still loves them. Now, he doesn't love what they do, and he has to punish them at times and keep them at a distance and limit their power. But it may shock you to think that God does not hate Satan. And as one who's been participating in exorcisms uh, for at least uh, 10 years now, I can tell you that one of the biggest traps an exorcist can fall into is to start hating the demons. If you start hating them, you become one of them. You know, you're, you're imitating them. You're on their side. And so often they'll, they'll indicate great hatred for people in the room. But we simply respond, well, we don't hate you. We love you. We're sad what's happened to you. Um, and you got to stop. You just have to go. You don't belong here anymore. You need to leave this person. But we don't hate you. Uh, or to grow, you know, uh, you know angry with the, with the devil and so on. So with all that in mind, just as background, coming back to this, I think Jesus doesn't say better he had never been born, but rather I think I think the more particular quote is better for him, better for that man had he never been born, is I think the more exact quote. But either way, it's the Lord's way of saying that doesn't look so good for Judas's future because of this. And of course, we also run into a problem where some people say, well, poor Judas, he had a role to play. God, God made him to play this role and he had to do it. And that's not true. Uh, remember, God lives outside of time. Although God had always known what Judas would do, he didn't make Judas do it. Judas freely acted. And God, always knowing that, had plans laid for uh, how to deal with that. But to say that God forced Judas to play a role or forced him to do something or that Judas had no choice is, not to, uh, is to put God in time where he does not belong and, and uh, to, to take away Judas's freedom. No, the answer is God always knew what Judas would freely do and had his plans laid accordingly. Thank you for that distinction. I think we'll end with this question here. Jeff is also writing in and he is uh, wondering if you could, what do you think happened or what do you think that Judas expected by betraying Jesus um, if he didn't expect him, you know, to be crucified? Well, I don't know if Judas expected him to be crucified or not, but I think what he, I'm going to just guess, because remember, this is speculative theology alert, got the sirens going, okay? Uh, you know, your guess is as good as mine, in other words. But I would say that I think what Judas wanted to do was to put an end to what he considered a farce, that this is not the true Messiah that we're looking for. And I, I, I just want this guy rounded up and removed from the scene, whether he's just put in jail or killed or whatever. But he is misleading people. He is not fulfilling our desires and our wishes. He's not on the agenda. And I, I want to I wanna make this, I want to end this farce. And that would be my guess. Well, thank you so much, Monsignor Pope, uh, for your insights today and over the past, not only just the, through this series, but all throughout this Lent. And Monsignor Pope, if we could conclude with your blessing. Yes. All right. Pax Benedictio Dei Omnipotentis Patris 
et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti, descenda super vos et maniat semper. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.